Welcome to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. If you're a fund manager, investor, or financial advisor driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected in the Faith Driven Investor community is to sign up for our newsletter, faithdriveninvestor.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community. One of the things we've heard the community ask us for is help in finding great deals to invest in. And so we've launched Marketplace. It's a new platform of funds and direct deals. Everything from private equity and real estate funds to ETFs. From philanthropic to market rate deals spanning the U.S. and emerging markets. Check it out at faithdriveninvestor.org forward slash marketplace. While you're there, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you have about being a faith-driven investor. All opinions expressed on this podcast, including the team and guests, are solely their opinions. Host and guest may maintain positions in the companies and securities discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as specific investment advice for any individual or organization. Hey, everybody, it's the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. We are so happy you're here. Marcus Stroud's story is one you might not even believe as you hear it. He experienced ups and downs as his life intersected with people like President Barack Obama and MLB All-Star Tory Hunter. There was a time when he lived in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Dallas, and times when he was homeless. And while you're going to have to hear the details from Marcus himself, one thing you won't miss is the faith, perseverance, and sheer tenacity that Marcus shows in all aspects of his life, including his work at TVX Partners, which we'll share more about today. I'll let him take it from here. Let's listen in. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. We've got a special guest with Marcus Stroud today. And as you've probably gathered, this is the Faith Driven Investor Podcast, a podcast where we look at sharing stories about people who are really making an impact in the larger faith-driven investment movement. And just as a quick recap, as you undoubtedly come to understand, there's a new model of investing. The old model had been that a Christ follower might take all of their assets and put it up here on their left hand. If you could see what I'm doing right now, up on my left hand, make as much money as you possibly can. And then to the extent you understand the biblical message of generosity, you give it away all on the right-hand side. And a collection of us, a movement of us have come to understand that the very process of putting investment capital to work might accomplish the same types of ministry goals that we otherwise had done in our giving. And we don't have to give up market return to do that. We can do that across geographies, asset classes, different return profiles from market return to gospel catalytic. And in that, a big player, of course, are funds and private equity funds. And they tend to find themselves in two different categories. One are people who've been fund managers for a long time, many of whom have worked at some really established secular funds and are bringing their faith to work, bringing things like chaplaincy in with their portfolio. And there's another breed of fund manager that's coming out, seeing a problem and an opportunity in the marketplace, taking some of their background, some of their drive and their passion, and starting a new fund, doing it with spiritual integration at the core of what they're doing. And this interview that we have with Marcus is in that latter category. Somebody starting a fund with a great background, great intentionality, uh, some things we think that are super unique, and uh, just overall a great story. So Marcus Stroud, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Thank you, guys. Big fan of the program and really excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to get right into what you do. Uh, you work at TXV. But before we do that, we want to hand the mic back over to you and give you a chance to share your story. I've heard parts of it, but I want to turn it over to you and just hear what it was like growing up. Who are you? Where do you come from? 
Yeah, thanks. A little bit about me. Who am I and where do I come from? I grew up in a small town called Prosper, Texas. Prosper is about 30 minutes outside of Dallas-Fort Worth. You know, a lot of people know about Prosper now because we're about 10 minutes away from the headquarters of the Dallas Cowboys. My story, how I ended up in Prosper. My father was an NFL player. My mom was a sports reporter. And when I was young, my father actually left my mother. And so my mom, you know, was a single mother, raised my brothers and I. And, you know, we had a pretty tough background, you know, growing up. But we were fortunate that she had remarried an individual who had bought some land out in Prosper. We moved there kind of before the huge real estate boom that had happened in North Texas. And yeah, that's how we ended up in Prosper. It was a really, really cool time because in Prosper, there was only like, I'd say 1,500 people. But of the six or seven African-Americans that were in Prosper, five of them were famous athletes like Deion Sanders and Torrey Hunter. And so had a really cool opportunity to grow up with some really cool athletes and, and live in a really cool town. So tell us about that. Some of these athletes that you came across, were any of them role models? Yeah. So, you know, growing up in Prosper was cool because, like I said, it's not that many people there. And so you have direct access to these athletes. And so you get to live with them and see them on a day-to-day basis. And so for me, you know, being one of the few affluent African-Americans kind of in that area that wasn't an athlete, they were always, you know, enamored by the fact that my family was well off, but they weren't athletes. And so we had you know, many, many dinners where they talked about business with my mother and my stepfather. And it was just cool because a lot of these guys were looking for the next gear in their life. And so like Tori would have, you know, a lot of his friends like Gary Sheffield and a ton of folks over and they'd be asking my stepfather ideas about real estate or about music. And they'd be asking my mom questions about the radio because she was working in radio at the time. And so, you know, it was cool to say my mentors were people like Tory Hunter, were people like Deion Sanders growing up. And, you know, they all had kids my age. And so we had a very competitive sports background. We had a bunch of tier one athletes and that led to a lot of folks coming down to recruit. And so, so it was just a very, very competitive environment, super awesome. And, you know, those guys proved to be unbelievable for me later in my life, which I guess I'll go into, you know, my mom and my stepfather had a lot of success and they were doing really well. Right before the financial crisis happens, we actually had the opportunity to host President Obama at our house for a fundraiser. Uh-huh. And so, you know, they were looking for a rural kind of town that exemplified Texas, if you will, you know, that had hay bells and all that out there. And so they chose to come host them at our house. And so it was truly an insane, you know, moment and opportunity for our family because, you know, you have the soon to be president of the United States, you have several senators, you have several A-list celebrities. And, you know, you have a guy who's just telling his story, if you will, and just trying to meet people as he's running for president. And, you know, that kind of catapulted our family in a way that we then had a lot of celebrities reaching out to us, asking us for advice and, you know, want to become our friends. Because obviously, if you're powerful enough to have the soon-to-be president of the United States in your home, you know, you must be somebody worth knowing. And so life was pretty crazy for me, I'd say from the ages of 12 to 14, just because we had those type of connections, those type of relationships. And then the financial crisis happens, I'd say about, you know, eight or nine months into President Obama's presidency. And we began to lose a lot of things. We had a lot of holdings in real estate and that started to kind of go south. His record label wasn't doing too well. People weren't booking shows for a lot of the jazz artists that were in his record label, as well as some of the Christian artists that were on his label. 
And so my stepfather began to kind of take it out on the family through kind of verbal abuse, eventually some physical abuse towards my mother. And then one day it kind of got to the point where he said, Marcus, we're throwing you guys out. I'm throwing your mom out. You got a choice. You can stay with me in this beautiful mansion. We have all these cars. I'll take care of you. Or you can go live with your mom. Of course, we're going to go live with my mother. And so, you know, that was kind of one of the first times in my life I would say I had really had to rely on God is probably the best way to put that. You know, I've grown up extremely faithful. You know, my, my grandfather is a deacon. My great grandfather was a deacon. You know, we have several ministers in our family. I was baptized at four years old. Like I've known Jesus my whole life at that point, but I never had been faced with adversity like that, you know, and we had just joined a church as a family. And I remember a couple of Sundays after joining the church, the pastor had said to us, you know, when you choose to truly follow Christ, when you choose to truly follow Jesus, that is when the enemy tries to attack you sometimes the hardest because he knows how much of a threat you are. Mm-hmm. And we saw it firsthand, you know, it, it, it was just so crazy to me that you just really dove into your faith. You just joined the church as a family. You're just picking up your stride as a believer, as a mature believer. And now you kind of, you know, are homeless. And so anyway, after you let my mom and my brothers and I go, we ended up kind of being homeless, living with my aunt. She had a two bedroom apartment and it was six of us living there. And so, we only had one car and we'd commute from her town of the colony, Texas to prosper every morning. This was before the tollway in North Texas was built. So, you know, we'd hit like 50 stoplights. And so it'd take us like an hour and some change to get to school. And, you know, we didn't have any money. And so here we are kind of migrating from living in this beautiful mansion, having a president of the United States in your home, having people like Martin Lawrence, you know, downstairs drinking beer with your stepdad to man, you're five deep to a car you know, you're getting to school at, say, 3.34 in the morning because your aunt has to be at work in South Dallas by about 8 a.m. Your brothers have to be at elementary. Your mom has to be at, you know, whatever gig she had at the time. And so that was a very, very tough time for me. But it was in those moments where I feel like my faith really became, you know, the center of my life. That's really powerful. That's incredible. So tell us what happens next. You go from really having it all, people looking to you, you probably, some level of your identity is coming from the fact of, you know, who's in your house to really having that all taken away. You lean into your faith and really dedicated, committed to your mother. Bring us out on the other side of this. So you're being formed. And what I understand, some of your life as an athlete, that you worked really, really, really hard in academics, but also just to make the football team and be there. Just bring us through as you're becoming a young adult, what happens next? For sure. Yeah. So I felt like my whole life up until that point, I was the definition of an offensive player. I wasn't super aggressive. I loved to get the ball. Like I was very much a happy-go-lucky kid who just loved to score touchdowns. And, you know, my coach would tease me because I never wanted to be tackled. I just wanted to run and score touchdowns. And I think when that adversity hit my family, I would say football was the greatest place I saw a change in how I approached life. I went from being this really skinny kid who just wanted to score touchdowns to you get into the weight room at 3.34 in the morning, you had nothing to do, you know, except lift. And then, you know, I was a skinny guy. And so for me, that was my kind of sanctuary, if you will, was going into that weight room and just lifting and lifting when the coach is around and just kind of getting after it. And we couldn't play any hip hop music. And our coaches would get to the weight room or they would get to the office around 5 a.m. So I would just play, you know, worship music. I'd play, you know, old school rock. 
And working out to that worship and that classic rock just really got me fired up every morning. And I just heard God's voice so clearly. Marcus, I am doing some things for you that you don't know right now. You just have to keep working hard. You have to keep working hard. You have to demonstrate excellence. And I'd always ask myself, God, you know, I'd ask God, like, why do I have to demonstrate excellence? I'm the one who's going home to no home, if you will. You know, I'm the one who, when I did eventually get a car for my first car from my grandparents, I couldn't afford to drive back to my aunt's house. So I would sleep in the parking lot at Walmart or Whataburger because I didn't have enough gas to go back and forth between the colony and prosper. You want me to demonstrate excellence. You want me to demonstrate you, but I'm sleeping in my car here at Walmart, here at Whataburger. Then I'm coming in here and I'm getting after it and I'm busting my butt on the field. And I was so angry for so long because I was like, why me? Why me? And then I just stopped asking why me? And I just started trusting his plan. And so I was always a really, really good student, but I started taking it to the next level and school for me, I didn't really care about getting good grades. I just cared about doing well enough in the classroom and doing the best I could on the field to get myself a scholarship to a really good school academically, because I had seen my dad who was in the NFL who didn't do well after a couple of years in the NFL with money and et cetera. I had seen what happened to him. And I said, God, if it's your will for me to be a professional football player one day, you can make that happen from any school in America. But I know you're calling me to be an example to other men, especially African-American men, of someone who can, you know, rise to the top academically as well as politically and build something from that. And so my life kind of at that point was, let me be the best I can at everything I do. And so eventually I became the first, you know, two-year captain in my school history. I became the first four-year class president in my school's history. It was funny right around the time they elected. Four-year class president? I was actually five years. I was pre- class president from eighth grade through my senior year. But yeah, four-year class president. And, you know, was on honor roll everything, president of FCA. I was doing all the right things. I won three president's community service awards for serving, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of community service each year. You know, I had won two mock trial competitions as one of the top young mock trial attorneys in Texas. And so I was doing all the right things, but I was also working three jobs. I was working at a construction company, a barbecue restaurant. In high school? In high school, yeah, as well as Abercrombie and Fitch. And, you know, I just didn't really have any joy, if you will, because I didn't really live a regular childhood. I was either working or I was working competitively in sports or I was working academically. And so it was just continuous grind, 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 grind. And I didn't really understand it at that time, but I knew that God would set me up with something special. So anyway... My senior year comes around, you know, I'm starting to get some opportunities in football. You know, I've been named All-State and things are going really well for me. And then, you know, one day we have a really, really big game against one of the top teams in the state of Texas. And I'm going against one of the top tackles in the state of Texas. And the kid beats me up, basically. He wins the one-on-one. And I remember my coach is pulling me into the office after the game saying, hey, man, we know there's not a lot going on, you know, for you at home right now. We know that you guys just lost your house we had gotten home and we had gotten evicted from it. We want to help you. And so my coach had offered to help me in, you know, financial ways and connecting me with people. And they said, I think one of the people we really want you to kind of buddy up with and get to know well is Tori Hunter. And so that's kind of how Tori came in my life. Tori's son had always been one of my best friends. He was one of our star football players also, but his dad really became kind of that surrogate father, if you will. And so Tori and his wife sat my mom down and said, look, we're going to take Marcus in we're going to help your family out. We're going to give you guys some money so you can have some money set aside for a home over the next 12 months. But Marcus is going to live with us. And so, you know, to go from working 10,000 jobs, 
you know, busting your butt in school, dealing with all the recruiting. The tough part about the recruiting and, and the football thing was, you know, coaches like to come to your house when they're paying you a visit. We didn't have a home to come to, so I'd always have to meet a coach at a restaurant or I'd have to meet him at my high school in a weight room, and so it was so embarrassing. But now that, you know, Tori was in my life now and I was living with these guys, they could come by the Hunter house and, and all these things. And so it's like my life just transformed overnight. And it was just so, so humbling because, you know, you have one of the high at the, at the time, Tori was like the highest paid MLB player. You have the highest paid baseball player essentially taking care of you, giving you everything you need. You know, you're living with your best friends, his kids, and you're just living this incredible life, but your family's still trying to find their way. And so it was kind of a weird time for me because, yes, I was so grateful to have God bless my family through these unique ways, through Tori and through other folks that had stepped into our life. But at the same time, I hated the fact that I was living this glamorous life and my family was struggling. And so from there, I had the opportunity to actually go play football at Princeton. You know, I was being recruited by them. I was being recruited by a couple of other schools. And when it came down to it, I prayed about it. And the Lord had just kind of shown me that Princeton was the place to go. And so, yeah, that's kind of where my childhood, I guess, stopped, if you will. And, you know, the Lord just blessed me with the incredible opportunity to go play ball at Princeton. So this is a great time, and I should have done this at the outset. Marcus has an incredible story, an amazing story. I should have introduced my co-host for the Faith Driven Investor podcast up front. Don't worry, William isn't going anywhere. William continues to be part of Faith Driven Entrepreneur, as does Rusty. But as we continue to launch the movement of Faith Driven Investing, and with I think that we all, in listening land, we can all agree that Luke's job as MC of the Faith Driven Investor Conference was second to none. And so with the momentum from that, we've asked him to come on board and do some more Faith Driven Investor podcasts. He's on, and this is a great time for Luke to join Best friend and business partner, super guy, really serious about the movement of faith-driven investing. He is a practitioner in it. He is also a former college football player and had met Marcus and was the one that encouraged us to talk to him. So very appropriate that this is Luke's debut. Luke, maybe you say a word and then just continue with the podcast, asking Marcus uh, some questions, please. Yeah, thanks, Henry. It's good to be on. And Marcus, great to spend some time with you a couple of weeks ago, and it's wonderful to have you on today. So just jumping right back into where Henry left off. So you graduate, you go to Princeton, you play there, obviously get a great education, then you go to work on Wall Street. Maybe just talk us through that transition. How did that feel in terms of your relationship with your family? And then you end up in this Ivy League school and on Wall Street. Like, just kind of walk us through what that felt like, what that what that was like. Yeah, it was incredible. You know, I think going to a school like that opened my eyes to a world I'd never seen before. And it was humbling because... You know, you're going to school with kids that went to, you know, some of the most prominent private schools in the world. Their parents are some of the, the biggest titans in their respective industries. And, you know, that air, if you will, becomes unbelievable to you in the sense that, like, wow, if I work really hard, I can achieve these things. But what stuck with me, though, I would say beginning of my sophomore year in college, I didn't like some of the alumni I had met, how they carried themselves. And let me unpack that. I didn't like the fact that they may have been unbelievably successful. You didn't see that godly air, if you will. It was very much their story. It was very much their identity, their success, that, 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 that. And I hated that because I saw so many of my teammates who began to follow that path. Also, I need to go to Wall Street because I need to make X amount of money. I need to be rich. I need to be this and that. It, it just creates so much brokenness and so much just instability long-term, if you will, by just having that type of mindset. And so anyway, I said, you know, that is a place I feel like God has called me to be. I feel like my ministry can be on Wall Street. 
And I'm not saying I can go into a firm and change that firm, if you will, as a a first year associate. But if I can be someone who is on Wall Street, but is striving to present a godly example, then what about the next Christian young man or woman who wants to be on Wall Street and has no hope in doing it because it's so secular? What if I am able to encourage them to do it just by my example? And so anyway, that's what led me to Wall Street. And so I began my career on Wall Street. And, you know, the first day of work, the very first day of work, I'm getting ready to leave my apartment in Tribeca and make my way up to Midtown. And my brother calls me and he's like, hey, man, I hate to bother you. I know it's your first day of work. I know it's super early, but I need some money to catch a cab to practice right now. I'm like, what do you mean catch a cab? Dude? You guys don't have a car? Like, you don't have a you, – you guys – last time I checked, your house wasn't that far from high school. Like, what do you mean you need money? He goes, well, Marcus, we've actually been living in a uh, shelter the last, you know, month. And it got to the point where we've been here so long that, you know, we're going to probably be kicked out soon. And, you know, we need some help. And I'm starting football today, and, and I don't want my teammates to know that I'm homeless. And I think for me, like, I get the image in my head when I think about where I was when I got that call. It just choked me up because it's like no matter how hard we've worked, no matter how much we've sacrificed, no matter how much we've prayed, no matter how faithful we think we have been, and it makes me think about the story of Job, it's like, we're still struggling. You know, even though I am, if you will, successful, we're still struggling. Even though my middle brother's got a full ride of Purdue, they're still struggling. And so that's what it was like, you know? And so I began my career there and I'd sent them some money. I had just got a signing bonus that day, sent them some money. And that was kind of my time in New York. It was, you know, you bust your butt, you work hard, you're doing your thing, you're grinding, you're trying to be the best young associate possible but you're not like your friends. You're not like your colleagues. You don't just go home or you don't just look forward to the vacation you're going to take to Turks and Caicos. You don't look forward to bonus season and thinking about the next Rolex you're going to buy or the next pair of Gucci loafers you're going to buy. You're literally saying, how can I save up enough money to be able to send my family a meaningful amount of capital, but also be able to start saving away, you know, for things like rings when I want to marry you know, the woman I'm dating or just little things like that. You're just thinking in a different mindset than a lot of your peers. And so that was a very challenging time for me just because a lot of times my head wasn't where my colleague's head was. Yeah, I think that's uh, sensible. And I watched a number of my teammates, you know, when I was playing in college too, just had not completely dissimilar experiences. And so that can be hard in terms of just kind of building community and feeling a part of what's going on. So just on the Wall Street front, maybe talk through a little bit of how your faith played out in that world, which is, you know, oftentimes thought of as being kind of a dark, isolated place. How did that play out for you? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people see Wall Street and they think of movies like The Wolf of Wall Street. And I would say, given my youth, a lot of those practices are definitely banned now. And you don't don't see some of those things that occur in the office the way they probably used to do back in the day. But at the same time, I would say the mentality is still very much there. You know, it was still very much a cutthroat environment. Money was still top of mind for people, not morality. And that's tough because if you're not bought into the place you're working at, it's just like being an athlete. If you're not bought into the team, if you're not bought into the motto and mentality of the team that you're playing for, you're not going to be a good teammate. You're not going to be able to fulfill your potential as an athlete. And I think the same way can be said for Wall Street. But at the same time, you need to make money and you need to be successful, you know, to live. And so you try to 
in a unique way, be a hybrid of sorts, be someone who's unbelievably hungry, unbelievably scrappy, demonstrating the tenacity that a lot of Wall Street folks look for into an analyst, but also you're trying to demonstrate what it's like to be a man of God while on the trading floor, you know, and that's being someone that's kind, someone that's gentle, someone that's humble, and someone that, you know, demonstrates the qualities of a godly man or woman, if you will. And so that was tough because you didn't really have any examples around you. You know, it's like when you're playing sports, you have upperclassmen who you can look at who do things the right way in the weight room. They do things the right way on the field and you want to follow that, you know, and then they do things the right way off the field. You don't see them doing stupid stuff on a Friday night or Saturday night. You know, they're doing the right thing all around the clock. For me, I didn't really have that, if you will, in front of me at the firm I was at. And so they're all really, really good people. But good doesn't get you in the head of it. And so, you know, I had to kind of go above and beyond. And so I was fortunate that I had teammates who, you know, I'd walk with through my four years in college spiritually, and they had now become part of Wall Street also, and they were working at, you know, some really cool banks. And so we would get together. We would go to church together. We would have small group together. We would pray together during the week and we'd say, hey, man, like, how can I be praying for you this week? You know, as you're working on these trades, or how can I be praying for you this week as you have these tough meetings with your bosses or as bonus season comes around? And it's very easy to get swayed by the dollar amounts and to lose sight of the fact that God is ultimately going to provide you the provision that you need. And so that's what it was like for me as a Christian on Wall Street is just continually searching and searching and searching for examples and mentors and people to look to what I realized at the end, like, hey, man, God hasn't called you to look for humans as examples of him. He's called you to be rooted in scripture and to get your example from scripture first and foremost. And so that was probably something that really changed my life, knowing that scripture had to be first and foremost for me as I look for resources to be an example of Christ in the workplace. Okay, I want to fast forward now to what you do. You're an investor. This is the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. And I want to get into what you're doing at TXV, but I can't do that without talking about CIC First, Clubhouse Investment Club. What was that? What problem were you looking to solve? Bring us into your investment career. Yeah, so after I leave my firm in New York, I work for a fund in Austin, a longevity contingent asset focused hedge fund. Really, really awesome. Learned so much. Had a chance to be a part of their, you know, $1.7 billion flash vehicle that I was on the advisory board of, and then a couple other funds they had worked on. And it really gave me a tremendous amount of exposure to the alternative asset class. And just as I was going to go work for another fund, I would say a pure fund of the one I was at, Tori calls me and Tori says, hey, Marcus, I'd love for you to be a part of the clubhouse. And so in 2011, 2010, there was a 30 for 30 called Broke. How and why athletes go broke? It ended up being one of the top 30 for 30 GSPs ever released. And a lot of those guys in that 30 for 30, you know, Winfrey Tubbs, Tory, Cliff Floyd, a bunch of those guys were friends of Tory's growing up. And so I grew up around these guys, you know what I mean? I knew them pretty well. And so Tory had created the Clubhouse Investment Club as a way for athletes to co-invest alongside Premier Venture Capital Funds and Premier Private Equity Funds. And for some of those guys to be direct LPs in those funds. And so those guys would kind of bring their money together and have an LP position because, you know, a lot of these guys, regardless of how much money they make, they didn't have enough capital to be LPs by themselves in a Carnegie Perkins or, you know, a Coastal Adventures Fund, but they had enough as a group to be an LP, if you will. And so that was the clubhouse. And so my job in the clubhouse was I literally took it over. So I managed all the relationships with the athletes, 
I managed the relationships with the managers and what staff we were working with at some of those funds. And I helped them get deal flow from C to Series A is kind of what we focused on. Got the guys some really awesome opportunities. And yeah, I was kind of like a liaison, if you will, between them and some of the top funds in Silicon Valley. So that's awesome. Thank you for sharing on that. That had to be a lot of fun, just being able to work and operate in that space and also being able to just improve access for some special people to be able to get access to you know, funds that otherwise wouldn't be accessible. How did you bridge kind of from that into TXV and love to hear more about what you're doing there? Yeah, so doing the clubhouse was, you know, like you said, it was an unbelievable dream. I mean, I'm literally working with some of the guys I've looked up to my whole life on the field and, you know, some of the most well-known athletes in the world, but there was a bigger opportunity. And it's like, for me, I had never had a dream of being entrepreneurial, if you will, early in my life. And I feel like this is one of the first times in my professional career where God tangibly was showing me through people and through things, the path that he wanted me to take, because this was never my dream. In my head, my dream was you're going to work at a fund. You're going to work with this fund. You're going to do well. And then you'll probably end up at a firm like TPG for 10 to 15 years. You'll do well there. And then you'll maybe spin out a future fund. Maybe you'll try to rise the ranks there. And that's going to be it essentially. And then you'll find other things to be passionate about. But I never thought this early in my life, I would go the entrepreneurial route. And so at Clubhouse, I was meeting some really, really awesome people. And one of the people I met was a guy named Brent Jones. And Brent, you know, was a incredible tight end for the San Francisco 49ers, who eventually went on to have a really, really awesome, you know, private equity and venture capital career where he started a fund called North Gate Capital, which at its peak was a $4.4 billion fund of funds. And so, you know, he had used the scrappiness of being a star 49er football player to get access to Sequoia in 1992 and Excel and all these other great funds super early on. And then he eventually raised the fund to be LPs in those funds. And so he ended up moving to Southlake, which is a suburb outside Dallas with his wife. Once he got down and lived in the Valley and we were introduced through another NFL player named Steve Wisniewski. And so Brent and I, you know, we got breakfast and then we'd get coffee and we would just talk about life, talk about what it means to be a man of God in that space and how it was for him starting a fund. And one day he just kind of said to me, you can do it, man. He gave me kind of that conviction that I could do it. He said, you can start a fund. I think the clubhouse is cool. I think it's awesome. But, you know, you're a unique guy. You're a type of guy who entrepreneurs love, and you're the type of guy that investors are going to like also. So anyway, after I met with Brent, I said, I need to go talk to more people if I'm going to start a fund. I need to go talk to more people because, yes, the clubhouse is such a cool opportunity, but I know we're missing something. And maybe it means I should start a fund or maybe it means I should enhance certain aspects of the clubhouse. So we went out to San Francisco and we met with my partner and I met with David Crane of Google Ventures. And, you know, he's a CEO over there and he had said, you have an it, if you will. He's like, you're a lucky guy. Those are the words he used. You're a lucky guy. You're one of those guys where a lot of good things just happens to you. And those are the type of people that end up being really, really, really good investors and become really successful in this space. And his word was luck. My word that I was hearing was favor. And so I had said, well, you know, if, if this man can see from his position, the favor that God has afforded me in my life, maybe I should take that next step. And so we decided to start a fund. And the reason we want to start a fund is because we saw a tremendous amount of opportunity as a firm in Texas, if you will, this is right around the time Austin was really becoming the, the hot alternative to Silicon Valley. We saw a really cool opportunity to start a fund in Austin that could represent the future of diversity. And I don't mean a firm that is 
like all black or a firm that's all male or a firm that's all Ivy League or a firm that's like, you know, filling homogenous group, whatever you want there, a firm that truly could represent the future, that had men and women of all different backgrounds, that invested in some of the most innovative entrepreneurs that we could find and didn't really care in terms of what color they were, what gender they were, just a really unique fund that truly exemplified what the future is going to look like. And that's what I wanted to start. And then more importantly, I wanted to create a firm that my kids would want to work at one day and that my kids' friends want to work at one day, that I would have wanted to work at in college. A firm that was led by godly men, you know, that were kind, were gentle, were meek, but were still some scrappy sons of the guns. We're still hungry and we're still going to find some really awesome returns and we're going to still compete to invest in some of the best technologies alongside some of the tier one funds in the Valley. That is what we wanted to create. And so that is why we created THV. And so it was tough because early on, you know, my co-founder and I happened to both be black. A lot of people were quick to label us as the diversity investors and as the fund that was focused exclusively on minority entrepreneurs. And don't get me wrong. I respect funds like that. We need those funds. The fact that women and minorities receive less than 1% of VC dollars goes to show that you need funds that are dedicated to those type of entrepreneurs. But that's not who we wanted to be. We didn't want to be put in a bubble. We wanted to just be some really cool guys that entrepreneurs like to work with that invested in the entrepreneurs we thought were best for our fund and could drive returns. And so that's our story. And so within a couple months after spinning out of the clubhouse, we convinced some of the clubhouse guys to give us some seed capital, get going. We started the fund. We got a little bit of press. And I would say this is kind of, you know, where God has shown some favor in us. You know, I would say like maybe two months into us starting the fund, we're sitting behind a whiteboard at a WeWork office and we get a cold call from this random number and this guy on the other line says, hey, my name is so-and-so from TPG. I'd love to have you guys come in and talk to us. And we're like, TPG, the firm and like the P fund? He's like, yeah. And we're like, oh, this guy's just messing with us. He's not really from TPG. But it was really TPG. And, you know, we ended up meeting the founders of the firm and some of the leaders on the fund and tell a little bit of our story. And what was really cool about that and why that's relevant to this podcast right now, we got up and we told our story and we did it subconsciously, but we talked about how much God had done for us in our lives and how we felt this was our ministry, if you will, to grow his kingdom and to give back to this space. And you could tell some of the people in the room, a lot of folks who weren't believers were kind of like thrown off by that. But there were a couple people in the audience who were clapping their hands and their faces just lit up because how many times have they seen folks in their space come before a room of say 250 people in their Fort Worth in their San Francisco office and say, hey, we are here because of the grace of God and we're going to build a fund that reflects that. And so, yeah, that was kind of the moment we knew, like, it's going to be a very tough and difficult road, but we need to be here. Yeah. So that's super motivating. Tell us what does it look like to build a fund from the get-go with God at the center? What does that mean that you do and, and how you think and how TXV is different than every other fund that's out there, than TPG? So it starts at the top. So leadership, in my opinion, always starts at the top. And so it's about how do you care for people in your firm? How do you care for people? And when you have a small firm, you don't have that many people. How do you care with your service providers? How are you being a steward of the capital your investors have entrusted you with? And so tangibly, how does that look? How often are we talking as a team about ways in which we can improve as teammates and as members? How are we handling conflict with each other? Okay, we disagree about something. Are we yelling at each other? Are we saying choice words? 
or are we demonstrating what it looks like to be brothers in Christ and talking through conflict in a godly way? We're praying about it. We're bringing it to elder council and they're counseling us through it. And so that is kind of how we did it. And so every Monday morning at about 7 a.m., we all sit down for coffee. We talk about our weekends. We talk about kind of what's on our heart. We pray for each other through everything that's going on in our lives. You know, we ask like, hey, how can I be better towards you? We have candid conversations like that. And we go from there. And the thing is, when you do the little things right, it carries over into the big things. So if you do the little things right by talking to your teammates the right way in the office, by talking to your service providers, even though they may have done something that, you know, wasn't good for your firm, but by treating them with kindness and respect, it carries over into how you talk to entrepreneurs. And what entrepreneurs then eventually do is there's something about you guys. There's something about you guys, you know, like, I don't know what it is, but there's something about you guys. Maybe it's the fact that you're Texans, you know, you Texans are just such nice people. And that becomes your mantra. And it's like, yeah, there is something about us. You know, the Holy Spirit is in this office. The Holy Spirit is in each of us. And that's how we do business. And so I think we try to actively hold each other accountable spiritually, you know, physically, emotionally. And that contributes to the culture of our firm, which eventually, hopefully as it grows, kind of will be our MO and be something that entrepreneurs can see right away that these guys are just different. This is not like talking to a typical, you know, VC private equity fund. So Marcus, you and I had a good conversation just about uh, the journey with TPG specifically and, you know, the fact that it was, you know, mixed reaction to you bearing witness and testimony to, you know, what God is doing in and through you and your business partner. How has that story and that, you know, act of testimony played out on the fundraising trail, you know, we've had experiences personally and, you know, prior to Sovereigns professionally with, you know, that going over like a lead balloon. What's it been like for you as you've borne witness? Yeah. So I think for us, we kind of hit the market at the right time. So our fund, we focus exclusively on human performance within human performance. That's health, wellness, and fitness, as well as disaster enterprise. And so for us, our investment thesis, if you will, definitely was suited for this kind of time, if you will. And so we've been lucky that that's resonating with people. But I will say that being a young, diverse fund in a place like Texas definitely has its challenges. And I don't say it has its challenges because, you know, we're black or, you know, whatever. It's just like this is a state in which this asset class historically hasn't been kind of the bread and butter of the state. And so there's a reason there are probably zero diverse funds in the state of Texas. And, you know, you have to go probably to Atlanta to find the next closest place in the South where there is a little bit of diversity. But, yeah, it's been tough, I would say. On one hand, we've been fortunate to have received commitments and support from folks like Carta, you know, Motley Fool and other interesting and unique strategic groups. On the other hand, it's like a lot of people, it's tough for them to, I guess, understand the bigger vision, you know, because what we tell people is we're not just an investment fund. You're not just investing in a VC fund. You're not just going to get quarterly updates. This is not just a regular VC fund that you're investing in. And you try to say that in a way that can resonate with, say, a non-believer, and it's a little bit difficult, you know. And one of the things that, you know, I remember we told one of our first investors that resonated with him and why he wrote a check, like, we have a chance to have an impact on this world in a way that few funds can probably do just given where we are, the timing of the world right now, and just some of the folks that the Lord has put into our life. And we were fortunate in that we did a talk, if you will, or I guess an episode on NBC Press here in San Francisco. And we did that, and it got in the hands of a lot of people. 
and we ended up getting a letter. It was addressed San Quentin State Prison. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, gosh, you know, what's one of my family members in San Quentin State Prison? And, uh, you know, saw this thing out in San Francisco. I was so worried. I was like, oh, my goodness, what is this? And we open it, and it's a letter from an inmate. And I won't say his name. But in the letter, he says, I saw you guys on NBC Press here, and I saw what you were talking about, and I saw the energy you guys were talking with, and I saw – I heard the goals of your firm, and it just gave me so much hope and joy behind these bars. You know, I was framed for burglary, and I, I've served four years here, and I take an entrepreneurship class here. And one of the things that I've learned is that, like, it's very difficult to be successful in business but also be godly. And seeing a young godly man like yourself – you know, on a platform such as NBC Press here in the heart of Silicon Valley, while based in Texas, just kind of gave me a lot of hope that when my time is up here, there may be opportunities to meet people like you who may give me a chance one day. And that letter kind of just, it struck with me because it's like, you don't know who the Lord has for you in your life. You don't know what impact you can give to people. You just don't know. It just goes to show that your plan is not your own. It's not, you know, you're just a part of his kingdom and you're just a puzzle piece in his greater plan. That's it. And so I guess between, you know, the people we've had chance to affect and and the folks we've been introduced to, you know, it's been mixed. On one hand, we've gotten some, like I said, investor commitments from some of the top unique groups in the country. And then on the other hand, you know, it's been tough and difficult to find LPs that resonate with your mission. And so, yeah, that's kind of how the fundraising's been. Thanks for sharing. That's awesome, Marcus. Marcus, one of the things that we always like to do when we close out every podcast is, unfortunately, we have to do now is to understand what you're hearing from God through his word. One of the things we love to point our listeners back to is just how important it is uh, to spend time in God's word every day. And so it doesn't, for you, it doesn't necessarily mean it be something that you learned this morning, but maybe something over the last week or the last month that you feel has really encouraged and equipped you and, and what you and your partner have got going? Yeah, for sure. I'm excited to answer this question. So last week I turned 27 and I was at the I Promise School in Akron, Ohio. And when I got there, I met a guy by the name of Aeneas Williams. Aeneas was a Hall of Fame quarterback, you know, sure. and is now a pastor in the NFL. Aeneas is an unbelievable man. Aeneas was actually my dad's teammate on the Cardinals, and my mom my whole life had said to me, Marcus, if there's one person I want you to meet in your life in sports, it has to be Aeneas Williams. We were in Bible study with him and his wife for a long time. He's an incredible man. He's someone who's going to pour a lot of fruit into you the second you meet him. I just know it. God has told me that one day you will meet Aeneas. So I meet Aeneas when I'm at this event last week, and I just instantly like turn around. And I'm like, God, oh, my goodness. Wow. The day before my birthday, you literally are here and meet Aeneas, and I've been praying on my flight there, it's like, Lord, show me what you want for me this year. Show me how you want me to live my life this year in terms of through this firm and just through my life. And so when I met with Aeneas, we ended up getting paired together for dinner. We ended up getting paired together for a lot of things. You could tell that God was at work strategically putting us together so we could talk. And another gentleman that was with Aeneas was a guy named Sean Alexander. Sean was a great running back for the Seattle Seahawks, NFL MVP. So anyway, Sean and Aeneas said, God has put on our hearts to kind of just minister. Can we minister to you these few days? And man, the amount of fruit they poured in my life, the amount of just things they blessed me with was just so unbelievable. And it was something that I needed to hear. And it was something that I could tell God was just saying clearly to me through them. 
And I think what I've learned is the importance of truly, truly sacrificing things around you to just listen clearly to God's voice. And that means, you know, cleaning out your mornings to where you're not distracted by the workout that you're trying to accomplish before 7.30. You're not distracted by all the emails that have piled up the night before that you want to get to right away. It's simply waking up and giving it to God first and foremost, beginning your day with God, God only. That's it. Don't put on any hype music to get you going. Don't do any of that. Just simply listen to God's voice. Do it by like reading scripture, do it by meditating, do it by praying, whatever works for you, but just truly giving the first few hours of your day to Christ. And when I tell you, both of them kind of recommend that to me, and it's been a practice I've done now for like the last four days, it has been life-changing. And it has brought me so much joy by just dedicating an hour, not 10 minutes, not five minutes, but an hour, hour and a half to Jesus first thing in the morning. And so that's kind of what he's shown me. Just, hey, you know, this is my firm. Your life is dedicated to me. I get to start the day. And it's been life-changing. Wow. What an incredible witness that you might provide to some of these entrepreneurs that you're investing in. You know, being an entrepreneur is one of the most stressful positions in life. And, and they're trying to understand the meaning of identity and why they're working so hard. And it's one of the reasons why entrepreneurship is one of the biggest areas of mental illness and even suicide. And for you to be able to show that, and it's not just kind of a check the box 10 minute thing as I am all too often guilty of doing, but real intentional time. That made an incredible impression on me and our listeners. I'm sure it's going to make an incredible impression on those you invest in. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so grateful that, you know, God kind of showed me that over the last few weeks. When I tell you it has been life changing, I try to encourage all my friends to start doing it. and it's, it's been beautiful. Well, it's been a special treat having you on the program. I'm grateful for your time. I'm grateful for your faithfulness and what God's called you to do. I'm excited for what's next for you. And I just want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, we lift up Marcus and we celebrate the great work you've done in his life from the beginning. And dear Lord, we ask for favor and protection. We ask that indeed you will help him to find the right deals to invest in. We ask that you would help him to find the right investors that would come alongside him. We pray for blessings on his partnership. I ask that they would work together well. And that gives me a great time to reflect and be grateful for the partner that I've got and the partners that I've got. Dear Lord, we just ask that you would allow Marcus to hear more from you. His identity would be fully rooted in you and that you would give him opportunity to be able to be a great witness with gentleness and respect, but a great witness nonetheless as a way that he shows excellence and shows love. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. We're very, very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven investor community. Hey, the best way for you to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvestor.org. And while you're there, we of course want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people join the discussion now from all around the world. But it's also very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and one that you'll share with others. This podcast, it wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer, Justin Foreman, program director, Johnny Wills, music by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdregs.com and audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. Mm-hmm.